Chris Tire Information Whiskey, 21530. Wind, 060 at 5. 066 Mike Juliet, this is Parts Radar Contact. Hazardous weather information from Minnesota available on flight service frequency. You've dialed in the Flying Midwest Podcast. Connecting aviators from across America's heartland. Sharing news, information, and events from around the region. Sit back, relax, and join our crew for some hangar talk as we discuss a wide variety of regional aviation topics. And now, from our home at the Anoka County Blaine Airport, our checklist is complete and we're ready for departure for another episode of the Flying Midwest Podcast. Hey, welcome everyone to the Flying Midwest Podcast. I'm Jim and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Maddie. Hey. And the Badger pilot, Andrew, who is super distracted looking at sectionals. <laughs> I am. Um, oh, there's a new one. See, I told you. I told you. Your ADHD is strong right now. Watch it in the world. Don't say that yeah. to the FAA. I was going to say, have you disclosed yeah. this to the FAA? Because it's, it's pretty apparent. I'm I'm almost like a real doctor. <laughs> so I'm actually going to, I found a bold method article that I'm going to bookmark because there are so many weird, <laughs> unique sectional chart symbols that I'm going to save. But I have a good one uh, called in by Ed from the Flying Stampede. I think we'll use that one today. You know what? Because we can't seem to get off of this topic even before we're recording, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Pilot Quarter Sectional Showdown. <laughs> it's I, blowing luck I, mud, guys. <laughs> I don't think that we're going to get you away from this topic until we just do it. So, mm. format change. <laughs> um, I mean, we're not doing talk- news and events, so it's cool. No, we can do whatever we want. Um, it's let's our talk podcast. About, I know. Stop interrupting me, God. No. <laughs> uh, let's reveal last week's. Um, before we do that, though, a couple comments um, from the peanut gallery. By that, I mean Ed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the comments uh, when we posted this on our Facebook is um, Ed had said, oh, but I should explain what this is first. If you're not sure what yeah, it is. So in true car talk form, I don't remember what last time. Last time was the blue square looking thing. Blue square. Oh, that's right. Um, and Ed said that's where the United States Square Force is located. Delbert <laughs> uh, Lowe, um, a patron. DME, it's been a day since I've used one. And Badger, your response was your answer is immeasurably close. <laughs> <laughs> Ted, um, our buddy from over at the Midlife Pilot Podcast, um, just said, what? I have no idea what that sectional symbol is. And my response, because if you've listened to the last episode, me either. Clearly, I didn't know. So let's share with the uh, good people of our audience. What in the hell is that? I mean, I know now, but. (laughs) So I asked the question last time, but Maddie, you know the answer. I do. Would you like to take it away? Oh, really? Aw, that is a DME by itself so it's it's by itself so usually if you see like a vor dme it's the vor symbol in a box you just have a box you just have a dme yeah i had actually used this without even realizing it one of our local airports timmerman has a localizer approach where you have to also simultaneously be receiving uh 
what I assumed was a VOR, but it's actually just a DME signal. So one of your, your DME receivers tuned into the Timmerman VOR, so to speak, although it's just the DME, and then your other needle would be tuned into the localizer, and that's how you figure out your final approach fix and all that fun stuff. I'll be damned. All right, who's asking the next one then? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so this one is credited to Ed from Fly... I almost said Fly the State Beat. This... So this one is credited to Ed from the Flying Stampede YouTube channel who sent me a text message and he didn't do it this way, but I'm going to set it up this way. Okay. Staying in Wisconsin, everybody pull up your sectional to Watertown Municipal. The identifier is Romeo Yankee Victor. I love how you sound like a second grade teacher as you're putting these together. (laughs) Turn your workbook to page. Go ahead. So we're all there and we see the AWA. I really do sound like a secondary. You do. All right, so we see the AWOS frequency, we see the field elevation, pilot controlled lighting, all that fun stuff, the the CTAF, and then there are these two letters at the bottom. Jim, would you like to read what those two letters are? I'm keeping the second grade theme going. Do you know what would be really helpful for this? Um, if you actually shared your screen, because I haven't got go. my workbook because I left it at home. Okay. I don't feel like opening up my Wisconsin sexual chart. For the Green Bay okay. sexual chart. So underneath all of that are the letters RP with some numbers. What do the RP letters and numbers Could mean? Could you seriously Can show us? Please see, see this. About. Oh my God! Imagine. Now I know. Now I know what our listeners probably feel like when we're doing this. Like we can't. What are you yeah. talking about? I can't see it. You really can't picture this. You've never seen. So this is not the question. This is a setup for the question. You've oh, never seen. Alone. Here, I'll share Just my screen. Share your screen, please. Do you see this giant RP on a section? Yes. What does that mean? Are we allowed to say? Oh. Are you here? Yeah, see it. This isn't the question. Oh, yeah. Right pattern for five. Shout out one. You know right it. Yeah. 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 Everybody knows this, right? Okay. So now scroll Not a little everyone. bit to the east. <laughs> oh, they should. <laughs> scroll a little bit to the east, northeast, and we have Hartford Municipal Hartford. Hotel X-Ray Foxtrot. I know this one. You already know this. You know this one? Yes, because I got screwed okay. over by it once. <laughs> So this one, it says RP, but there's an asterisk before it. Why is there an asterisk? What is asterisk RP? And the hint that I'll give is I almost got in trouble flying to this airport once because I didn't understand what it was. (laughs) (laughs) Jim, if you want to guess, because I actually know, I've encountered this one. I don't want to spoil it It, for... It means that you have to do the right traffic pattern unless you're an asshole and you do whatever you want because the asterisk is to symbolize... (laughs) being an asshole it kind of looks like one left pattern for assholes only everyone else right pattern yeah yeah everyone else is doing what they're supposed to except for the assholes are we gonna believe that i'm not sure i might just leave that (laughs) it could be indicative of the uh the only thing that comes to mind is the right pattern stuff i don't know maybe it's right pattern at night that would be a great final answer that's i'm gonna go i'm gonna go with that It's, it's 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 if a good the answer. Lights are on. You do a right pattern. That is not the correct Damn answer, it. but I like where your head's at. Um, so, if you know the answer, and now I'm talking to the listeners, not you anymore, Jim. We know you don't know yeah, the answer. I don't know anything. Go on to our Facebook and Instagram. We'll have a picture of this posted, and you can comment what you think the answer is. And if you get it right, or even if you don't, we'll comment with your answer on the show. 
and maybe make fun of you. Creative answers get bonus points. Yes, we will for sure read the creative ones. And try not to look it up, because that's kind of the fun of it. I had to look it up for safety reasons once, but other than that, take a guess. And for me, safety's third, so I don't really look up stuff. Let's go. Fun and danger, right? And Ed, you are not allowed to answer on Facebook, because you are the the actual provider of the question. Unless he says something silly like he did last time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, He's a a pretty sarcastic guy. I I think he can come up with something. All right, so stay tuned, like, subscribe, and follow the podcast so that you don't miss the next episode where we reveal the answer. Yeah, and hey, thanks to the guys over at Pilot Quarters for sponsoring this segment. If you're looking for any type of fun and exciting chart-inspired apparel, check those guys up. They have sweatshirts. Oh, yes, they do. Buy their sweatshirts. PilotQuarters.com. It was in an advertisement. I was like, oh, they have sweatshirts. Oh, I saw your post. I will take 12. <laughs> is just, that what you wrote? <laughs> I just commented on one of their ads. I know. I don't. It was funny. Hey, so um, last episode, we talked a bit about mental health, resiliency, all that stuff with Dr. Penny Levin. And it sounds like that sparked a little bit of an interest in our friend, the Badger pilot. Uh, badgers are known for digging into stuff, right? Burrowing, yeah, just if you will. Bit. So I think that's what you're doing yeah. on this topic. So tell us what you're doing. Absolutely. So I don't know what it is about the topic, but it really you know, struck a chord with me and was something I wanted to follow up on. So I reached out to a handful of pilots that are flying for a living. Um, and in this case, they all are flying paying passengers, whether it's regional or uh, legacy airlines or even even one or two corporate pilots. And I asked them a handful of questions, basically saying, hey, is mental health an issue that should be addressed by the FAA? And of course, everybody said yes. But we all know the FAA is a government entity and nothing ever moves fast with that. So I started trying to brainstorm and think of what are some intermediate things that could be done to help pilots with minor to moderate anxiety or situational depression, things that we all go through in life, you know, financial stresses, death in the family, something like that, that pilots can't really talk about openly because even just oh my my mom is in end of life care and it's really stressing me out and I can't focus on work if you go and talk to somebody you're risking losing your medical for something that just about anybody else would be able to go talk to somebody ab- about and not have to worry about job security so i started thinking about ways that this could happen for pilots without the risk of them losing their medical. And obviously the caveat would be the help that they'd be seeking would be non-medication. It would be for minor to moderate cases and not severe, I'm thinking of crashing my plane into a mountain type of case. I think we would all agree that something like that would have to be reported. But for the minor to moderate stuff, I, I asked a lot of these pilots, would you utilize this counseling if it was truly anonymous? And they all said, maybe I might not, but I know people that would. And I asked them, well, if this was set up through your company, which at whatever company you're working for, legacy, regional, corporate, whatever, would you trust that it's anonymous? And like just about every employee that works for any company in the world, they said, no, I don't trust <laughs> HR. I don't trust my company. Uh, so a lot of them thought it wouldn't be anonymous, and they, but they would maybe trust their unions to be able to set something like this up. And so I'm kind of diving into this idea of putting together a survey, asking questions of, would you utilize these resources if you knew it was anonymous or if there was a guarantee it wouldn't affect your 
medical. Um, questions like, is losing your medical your biggest source of stress at work? Have you ever flown with another crew member who was so distracted by something going on in their life that it was a safety of flight issue? And so I'm kind of in the very beginning stages of this, but but just kind of seeing if there would be even enough of an interest out there to drive looking into it further as far as possible solutions and an intermediate step while the FAA drags its feet and may or may not ever address it. And kind of stemming off of that as well, I'm even looking at the passenger side and asking non-pilots who fly on airlines, they're paying customers, if you knew your pilot had a mental health concern, and it was being untreated, how would you feel about that compared to somebody with minor anxiety from a life situation that everybody goes through who's able to get a little bit of help? If we can get enough feedback from pilots saying they would utilize these resources if they knew that it would either be anonymous or would not risk losing their medical, and back that with passengers saying, I'm okay with a pilot saying they have minor depression because of a family death who's allowed to talk about it. And I'd much rather have that than a pilot who's having stress piled upon stress upon stress and now is such a distraction that they're going to take shrooms and try and pull the fire extinguisher on an engine. If we can get public support in addition to pilot support, I think the FAA would have to listen to that and at least start taking action. The question I would have is if if it's you're talking to a counselor, even if it's anonymous, if you don't report that to the FAA, are you going to have any issues with your medical for that? Or are you somehow fraudulently doing something with your medical? Right. And I think, and I could be wrong because I haven't done a deep dive into the regs yet, but I think if you were going to a counselor or a therapist or whatever you want to do, I know uh, Dr. Levin, when she was on the show had mentioned people were calling it different things so that yeah. it wouldn't be something they'd have to report on their medical and and therefore wouldn't have a diagnosis. And my understanding based on, and I could be mis, misunderstanding what she was saying, is that as long as there's not a diagnosis, it's not necessarily sure. a problem. All that being said, where do we go from here if we move forward with it? And uh, so this is kind of my, my call out to the listeners. If this is a topic you'd like to see explored, we have our Discord community. It's for both Fly the Transition and Flying Midwest podcast. Uh, but there's a thread on there for each episode, including the Penny Levin episode, where we've actually started this conversation. Email us. And if you don't want to join the Discord, but you have some comments, by all means, email us too. And I'll take a look at it and see what people's thoughts are. But uh, let's get the conversation going. Everybody needs a little bit of help. So I think the idea of saying, hey, there's a problem, but here's a potential solution is much better than saying there's a problem because everybody knows that. <laughs> Even I think the people who work for the FAA know that. So, Jim, you've been a busy bee, too, haven't you? Um, I have. I don't know how to sit still, it turns out. Um, oh, good. You're like me. <laughs> I was listening to an episode of this will make sense in a second, I promise. Um, I was listening to an episode of the Taking Off podcast with Christy Wrong, Christy Wrong, <laughs> uh, with uh, Dan and Christy. And Dan was talking about all the stuff he has on his plate. And <laughs> Christy said, almost, I felt like it was to me, but she doesn't know how overcommitted I am. But she goes, something, something overcommitment to whatever you're talking <laughs> about. 
I don't know if he's making an excuse. I can't remember if he's like making an excuse for something or what, but she goes, something, something. <laughs> so um, that's kind of, I, I do that sometimes too. You know that I'm starting up my uh, flight instructor lessons again this week. So I was working on some lesson plans and I spent a decent chunk of the weekend uh, revamping the formatting that I was using to clean it up a little bit and make it easier to read, easier for me to read while I'm doing a lesson. So I, I spent a lot of time picking away at that. To, I want to have a product I can be proud of and show a student and have my little touch to it. So um, yeah, it, it takes a lot of time, especially when I've written other lesson plans and now I have to transition them, unintended, um, to, <laughs> uh, <laughs> to that other format. So I, I spent a good deal of time this weekend just reformatting um, the lesson plans I've written so far. It'll be worth it. I still use mine. I, I like the format that I've come up with. I think it's, to me, it, it, the flow just seems better than what I was doing in the first place. Not that I was wrong. It still ha it had the information. It just, this is cleaner. And I think uh, it'll be easier for not just myself, but for a potential student to follow. Yeah. And that's, and that's the whole point. And potential CFI candidates in the future who you might know from... I don't know, co-hosting a podcast with. Maddie's already a CFI. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> okay. Wait a minute. Oh, 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 there. Come on, that was so funny. I don't know. I still use my lesson plans. I'm a huge proponent of making like really good lesson plans and then not using them until you realize, oh yeah, I need to remember how to talk about this thing. And then you have something beautiful to open up to. And it's like, yes. I remember this. And then you can teach and act like you know what you're doing. I have a nice header on it. I have got columns and boxes and stuff. So it's, it's broken down a little bit better. I think it's going to be easier for me to keep my place too. Because that's something I experienced as I was doing the first few lessons. That as I get go down the list of topics, I get lost sometimes in where I was at on the lesson plan. So I think for me, this will help me stay a little bit better on track and remember where I was at. At the end of the day, they're all yours. I mean, the students might see them they're in passing, mine. but they're they're yours. They're for you. So if you like them, they flow well, and you you know work well off of them, you're going to use them, which is kind of the point. Maddie, you're doing some sim work? Yeah. So I have been working in the last couple of weeks. I started on the 8th, and then I started initial on the beach jet. I have been... I, got, I went through ground school. I passed ground school. I took a little written test. You know, there's a lot of studying and stuff. There is lots of information, but thankfully that's over with. Okay. And I'm on day four. I just finished day four this after, this morning of Sims. So I think I have six. I just have Thursday and Friday is my last day of Sims. And then I have recurrent. So I'm going to basically going to be going into a class of people who have already done this and doing Sims and grounds for three days until the end of the month. So that's super fun, but I've been actually flying a jet in the sim. So people are like, oh, it's just a computer, which, yeah, obviously, but, you know, most computers aren't a couple million dollars, so I feel like I got yeah. something going on there. But um, it acts with a few quirks, just like the real airplane. You know, the visuals are pretty okay. <clears throat> you know, they can fuss with any weather. They can do any type of failure, They can, you know, that you can think of. Um, I've had a couple blown tires, for instance, which is a, a fun event. Lots, lots of interesting things. I've been really, really lucky, but it's been super fun. I think you made a comment about um, people thinking, "Oh, I'm just flying a computer," and um, how like close it is in handling characteristics and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. I think what a lot of people, at least in aviation, realize, and maybe the general public doesn't, is 
when you're getting your type rating, that's that's it. You're flying it in the sim. You're not going up and taking that jet up to get your type rating. It's all in the sim until mm-hmm. you get your type rating and then you're out on whatever, it's, whether it's a line or whether it's your corporate company or what have you. Um, that's the first time you're actually flying the aircraft. I wouldn't say it's just a computer. It's a little bit more than that. It's a little bit of a fancy <laughs> computer with hydraulics and everything. So are you at the point in your training now where every time you sit in the sim, I know you said you broke the sim, but like every time in the plane, something breaks to the point where like, do you just not trust anything on the plane anymore? And the first time you're out in the work, real world, you actually go through a full flight and holy cow, everything worked on here. <laughs> Are you at that point? No, well, I don't, I don't know if I'll ever see that, but I assume I will at some point with another jet once I actually start flying the real jet. Um, yeah, I've heard somebody made a joke the other day of like somebody making... <laughs> a preemptive emergency call to tower because they assumed their engine was going to fail because it was like training, even though they did not have a fail engine, which just absolutely tickled me. But I could see, you know, that could definitely be, you know, it it does not lull you into a false sense of security. And in fact, if everything's going really well, it's about to not. So yeah. <laughs> like, oh, everything's going so well. Suddenly th- accidental thrust reverser and deployment, you know, like <laughs> absolutely nutty things could happen. I can't, unfortunately, I don't, I can't get the SIC type rating because I need one real beach jet landing. And I'm not about to go over to Clemens and be like, hey, can I just sit in and pretend to be an SIC for five seconds and then have a landing so I can get my SIC type? Maybe someone listening has a beach jet that'll let you sit in for a couple minutes. and That would be very cool. <clears throat> I mean, a pattern really is like five minutes. If you want to hop out Maddie... With the beach shed, let us know. I'm okay at it, so. Let's <laughs> do your We're own. Bob. Trying to help you, and you made it worse. Let's, okay, no. if you don't mind, just letting me take the controls of this multi-million-dollar jet <laughs> that I'm kind of okay at, and may or may not break. What do you want from me? I've only had four or five days in the sim. It'll probably be okay. So yeah, well, there's a lot of stuff that we all have going on. So I don't know how we managed to find time to record this, but here we are. We we didn't <laughs> yesterday. I was oh, dead. Here we are. <laughs> no, we, that's right. We are a day late from our normal recording. Sorry. Day. So with all of that exciting stuff in all of our lives, we probably don't have time for news and events this week. We are the news and events. <laughs> we are the news and events. Absolutely. Uh, but I I do want to take the opportunity real quick to give a shout out to Carl Galnick. He is an instructor in th- of my former, former club, the Wisconsin Fox River Flying Club. And uh, he last month was bestowed the Wright Brothers Award for 50 years of safe flying. Nice. Congratulations to Carl for uh, 50 years of safe flying and that awesome honor and recognition. That's a huge achievement. Congratulations. Well, you can't get to 50 years of safe aviation and flying without passing that first check ride. And check rides are the theme of our next show. So tonight we're pleased to welcome Matt Teller, who is a DPE from Wichita, Kansas. Yes, I dragged him on this podcast, willingly. (laughs) There was willingness involved. (laughs) Matt has been a DPE for a little bit now, and he does, uh, I see him every once in a while doing check rides at my flight school. He loves aviation, and he loves airplanes, and he also loves getting people knowledgeable about how the heck to pass a check ride, because that is not something that everybody knows how to do. So without further ado, we'd love to welcome Matt Teller. 
All right. Well, Matt, welcome to the Flying Bubbles podcast. Really happy to have you here. And I personally think it's really cool that we were able to get a DPE on now, finally, because we've been talking about it for, I think, two years, trying to get an examiner in here to pick their brain. So thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, you've listened to some episodes, so you know where we're headed right out the gate. It is our Fast Five Questions. Do you think you're ready for this? We're about to find out. (laughs) All right. Question number one. What is your favorite airport? Ooh. uh, Favorite airport to operate out of? Probably Boston Logan. Boston Logan. Okay. How come? (laughs) Um, I spent the first part of my career in and out of there several times okay. a day. Uh, they've got outstanding controllers, and it's tough to beat the scenery around that area. That's a good answer. I also like Boston. I don't think I'd want to live there or be there a lot, but... No, no. Fantastic place to fly in and out of. Great place to visit. Not someplace I'd want to pay to live. <laughs> I like the Midwest and, and uh, the cost of living around here. That's a great answer. We love the Midwest. Okay, question number two. Least favorite airplane that you have flown? Least favorite airplane that I've flown? Probably the Piper Tomahawk. Tomahawk. Yeah, it's it's up there on uh, almost even step with the the 150, uh, just because I spent two hours in one today, and I still am feeling it in my left knee. Yeah. (laughs) Were you uh, smushed in there a little bit? A little bit, yeah. Uh, I'm six foot three and not exactly the Prince of Svelte, so um, yeah, 150s are, are uh, not my friend. All right, fair enough. I, yeah, I'm not that tall and I don't like 150s. So, what do you do? Don't. All what? right. Next question. I'm assuming I know the answer is not the 150 for this question, but if you could own one plane, what would it be? Uh, price is no issue. Price is no object. You don't have to worry about the maintenance cost, fuel, nothing. P-38. P-38. Solid I choice. like the twin engine reliability, and I like to be able to fly upside down. <laughs> there you go. Excellent. Well, an F-15 could do the same thing. It's just a, it's a jet twin engine. True. That might be a little <laughs> bit harder to get my hands on. But that's not the, yeah, it was, money is no object. <laughs> Neither is the Air Force Security Forces. They're not going to stop you from taking it. That's fair. Well, the the F-15 would be right up there then. (laughs) All right. Question number four. What is your favorite check ride to administer? MEI. Multi-engine instructors. Yep, by far. Any specific reason? uh, Well, the big thing is I get to fly a little bit, so I actually get to touch the airplane, which is pretty entertaining. But... It's usually the capstone or very near to it for most instructors, so they know how to instruct. They've got a pretty good handle on the the technical side of things. Now it's just kind of the polish on a new type of aircraft and adding the extra engine. So I get to pull out my whole list of tips and and tricks, and I get to mess with them a little bit, and and it's just a lot of fun, (laughs) you know, actually getting to fly the airplane and, and... shutting down an engine and and doing all that good stuff cool all right our final question if you could meet and have a conversation with anyone in aviation dead or alive who would it be many years ago i got to very briefly meet gene cernan and uh my original fascination has always been the manned space flight program uh, from the shuttle era and earlier uh 
but Cernan is, is one of those guys who, uh, you know, it was just shaking his hand real quick, getting an autograph and a book, and he made you feel like you were the only one in the room. He took time to talk to everybody and, and uh, ask them a little bit about themselves and tell some amazing stories. The book that he wrote is, well, books uh, are phenomenal. Uh, of all the Moonwalkers, he's he's been the one that I've been most fascinated by and, and most enjoyed meeting, I think. That's really cool. Well, thank you, sir, for playing along with our Fast Five questions. So, Matt, what do you say we jump into our interview for this episode? Can you tell us a bit about your aviation background, like how you got into aviation? I grew up in Wichita, Kansas, uh, air capital of the world. So I spent my entire youth looking up the skies and seeing airplanes fly over. Uh, my dad was a broadcast meteorologist by trade, so uh, both of us looked up at the skies, but he was looking at the clouds, and I was looking at the big metal things up there. <laughs> sure. Um, in middle school, when uh, Flight Sim 95 came out, I think I was one of the first ones to buy it, and I had the cheap little Satek joystick. Played that for years and years. When I went off to college, I had a, a bigger setup, and... Uh, Flight Sim was was always a big part of my life until my sophomore year of college when I finally decided to do it for real. Uh, and thanks to some great support from my parents, I was able to get my private pilot certificate my sophomore year of college. But I had never really thought about it as a career. Um, I went and worked in television for uh, just over two years after school. And uh, we were looking at my then girlfriend, now wife, and I were looking at having to move for my career. And as we were having that conversation about where we were going to go and what we were going to do next, a friend of mine called me and said, uh, hey, I've got a flight in the 421. You want to come with me? And in the middle of what was supposed to be this life deciding conversation with my wife, I basically dropped everything and ran out the door to go fly. <laughs> and That's such uh, a pilot thing to do. When I came back from that flight, my wife said, well, we're not moving for television. Uh, go do what you want to do. So I went off to flight school, and uh, three months later, I came out with CFI double I M E I. And mercifully, this was before the 1500 hour rule. Uh, so I got hired almost straight away by a regional airline out on the East Coast. Oh, cool. Uh, started flying Beach 1900s, no GPS, no autopilot, uh, in and out of Boston and LaGuardia. I was on. <laughs> I uh, caught what you did there. Yeah. Old habit. Uh, I was on the 1900 for just over two years, and then I went to the Dash 8 Q400. I was on that for about three years, and then I upgraded into the Saab 340. Uh, did that for just over a year, and then I decided to leave the 121 world and went and flew Part 135, 91K, and Piaggio P180s. Uh, spent just over two years flying the P180 uh, until I got furloughed twice. And uh, the company that I was working for, we were out in Denver uh, at this point. company that I was working for went out of business. I got hired by Flight Safety International down here in Wichita, uh, which is what me, what brought us back to my hometown. I okay. spent three years as an instructor and uh, program manager on the King Air 350 for Flight Safety International. And then uh, jumped ship there to go fly the King Air 350 for another three years for uh, Gamma Aviation Wheels Up. And I did that right up until the day FedEx called me. And back in 2018, I went to FedEx on the A300. 
And about a year and a half ago, I upgraded to the left seat of the 757 with FedEx. And that's what I've been doing ever since. I didn't know you flew the catfish. That's so cool. It's a quirky little airplane, but I (laughs) loved it. It's a great, great airplane. And through all of that, you found time to become a DPE. I think my wife would argue that I haven't really found the time to do the DPE thing. I just kind of shoehorn it in. But <laughs> Well, let's talk about that a little bit. How does one actually become a DPE? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And that's definitely something that all DPEs get asked fairly frequently. Uh, and in fact, when I go and give talks and stuff for Young Eagles or EAA, things like that, I have a, a slide that I think shows you the epitome of my sense of humor because it says the word wait about 30 times in a row. Uh, Because really, that's the biggest thing. Um, Once you have the flight time minimums, which are all listed out online, you put your application in in a a system called the designee registration system, and then you wait. And then you wait a little bit longer. Uh, In my case, you wait about five years. Oh, wow. Uh, And one day, uh, sometime after you have forgotten that you even applied to be a DPE, you'll get a phone call that just says FAA on it. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) once they remove the paddles from your chest and you answer the phone call, uh, you find that it's your local FISDO calling to ask if you still want to be an examiner. And uh I had to talk to my chief pilot, but uh, mercifully, he walked me through the process for how not to run afoul of my employer and, and basically said, yeah, absolutely take this opportunity. Um, so once you get selected by your local FISDO, it's about a year, year and a half before you get fully qualified at that point. Uh, because once again, it's um, there's a lot of training involved and a lot of waiting. But the biggest thing is just have the flight time and then apply. My big competition, apparently it was me versus one other guy were the finalists to be selected by the FISDO at the time. And the reason that I won out is because the other guy on his resume under his education experience said university city state in those words, as in he copied and pasted a template from the internet and didn't replace the name of the university, the city of the state. It said the words university city state. Whoops. So apply early, apply often. Be very patient and remember to edit your resume. (laughs) So then what made you decide to go after being a DP and apply? And once you got it, what kind of training went into it? I loved instructing. Uh, It's always been a passion of mine. I spent three years at flight safety doing nothing but um, after having instructed in airplanes for a little while. But with most 135 and 121 operators, everybody that I've ever worked for Uh, we're not allowed to do outside commercial flying and instruction counts. So there was no option or opportunity for me to do any instruction outside of the 135 or the 121 environment, which is great. I love doing that stuff too, but there's something a little bit more engaging and a little bit more rewarding, I think, about, you know, the 61 style of training. Mercifully, uh, FAR 6147 Bravo says that the applicant is the PIC, which means that the DPE is just a passenger. And so that was the discussion that I had with my chief pilot was he's a DPE as well. And he pointed out that as long as I am only examining in single pilot aircraft, I'm not a pilot at that point. I have no crew status. And so it does not run afoul of my employer or anything like that. 
So it's kind of my opportunity to stay engaged, keep flying general aviation aircraft, and hopefully be able to give back to the next generation of pilots. Uh, as far as the training, uh, once you get selected, you get put into the queue to do the, the computer-based training. Uh, it's something, it's 90 some odd hours, I think, of computer-based training for the initial. It's been five years since I did it, so I, I forget yeah, the details on that, um, which you have to pay for. Uh, once you pass all the computer-based training, it's a week down in Oklahoma City, uh, which you have to pay for. Uh, <laughs> and that is entirely regs. I mean, it's it's picking apart the FAR aim, you know, all of the, the various FAA part number manuals, airplane flying handbook, handbook of an aeronautical knowledge, so on and so forth. The end of that is making your, what we call a POA or a plan of action, which is a document that all designees are required to have for every single check ride. And so they make sure that we know how to put together a POA before we leave Oak City. Because once we come back to our home district, one of the very first things that we're going to have to do is find an airplane and go take a check ride with the FAA. And so it's you in the left seat and the inspector in the right seat, basically a 709. I mean, it's, it's without the jeopardy, but they can test you on whatever they want. Once you've done that, you swap seats. And now the inspector is playing the student. And they can do whatever they want. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. You have to examine them uh, on at least two tasks from every single ACS that that aircraft is qualified for. Wow. And PTS for that matter. So it's it's a long flight. It's, it's every bit of two, two and a half hours for that flight. And they're going to put you through the ringer. The inspector that I had doing mine when we were doing the, the two tasks from the instrument ACS... I've got to give him credit because I could not fly that badly on purpose if I wanted to. <laughs> but one of the tasks that we did was a precision approach. And so it was the ILS into AAO, Jabbar Regional Airport. And he flew it three-quarter scale deflection to three-quarter scale deflection to three-quarter scale deflection to three-quarter scale deflection, <laughs> plus or minus nine and a half knots all the way. I mean all the way down but that's within standard yeah i was gonna say <laughs> and so i couldn't bust him on it it was all debriefable so i had to give the debrief yeah, yeah. on the back end of that that was comprehensive and a little bit hard hitting because it was awful but not awful enough to be unsatisfactory and so it's it's things like that that they're looking for is is our judgment how we apply the acs do we color within the lines or are we going to say, well, that was really bad and it's unsat, even though they never actually exceeded any limitations. So sure, that's what they're really looking for uh, when we do that ride. Once we've done that and we get their Omni Omni VOR blessing to <laughs> uh, continue through with our designation, uh, it's waiting again because now that inspector has to pass the paperwork up the chain get all the signatures on it then it has to get passed back down the chain and then the inspector will come back to you several weeks later and say here's your uh cloa it's called your certificate letter of authorization and you are now a dpe go forth and find an exam because every 
new examining authority we get has to be observed by the FAA. So private pilot airplane, single engine land, the FAA rides in the back with us. We're going to add instrument airplane, single engine land. The FAA is going to ride in the back with us. We want to add private multi. The FAA is going to ride in the back with us. So that's why it takes about a year and a half to get fully designated. Once you go through all of the formalized training, then you've got to get all these observations done. Jeez. I think you answered the, the next question I have, though. I was going to ask, you know, once you're through the initial training, what rides you can do. But it almost sounds like as you start going, you, you need to be observed on all of them as you start performing them. Yeah, that's correct. It's it's up to the FISDO as to what designations they want to give each individual. We have to hold the rating in order to be able to examine it. Uh, so I wasn't able to examine ATP single engine until last year when I just went out and got my ATP single engine. Uh, but I had everything else. In some places where they have a glut of private pilots coming through, like with high production uh, flight schools and things like that, they might give some examiners only private pilot authority just so that they have somebody who can focus on just that. That is increasingly rare, uh, especially since the geographical fences got dropped a couple years ago. They want everybody to be able to do everything. But there are certain exams, CFI initial being the, the big one, that the FISDOs still tend to withhold until they have somebody who has considerable experience as an examiner. General aviation in general is kind of regarded as not as safe as commercial, right? So there's a, a slightly dangerous element to something like flight instruction, especially. Do you see a difference in safety overall in being a DPE and the things that you do with students or applicants than being an instructor? Uh, I do. The, the biggest difference for me as an examiner versus an instructor is that by the time a student turns into an applicant and they're sitting across the table from me, They've been through the ringer. There is an expectation of a minimum level of competency. That's not to say that applicants don't do dumb things every now and then. We all do dumb things every now and then. But in general, they're not going to get the recommendation to sit across the table from me unless they've met some minimum standard. So being an examiner is much less scary, much less threatening than being uh, especially an initial instructor for, for a private pilot or, or early instrument type stuff. But compared to the 135 and the 121 world, absolutely. Uh, general aviation has made huge strides over the last year, huge strides, but we've still got a long way to go. Are there any moments that stick out to you that you have had on any check rides? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk about any of um, I've had to take the airplane three or four times during a check ride, which, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, if the examiner has to take the airplane during the check ride, that's the end of the check ride. Uh, so we, we generally try to avoid that as much as we can. We're going to let the applicant dig themselves as deep into the hole as we safely can. But at a certain point, we, we just have to take the airplane. The biggest one that comes to mind was a private pilot initial. The applicant had done the ground portion satisfactorily. We had set off on the cross country. 
I triggered the diversion. The airport that they chose for the diversion uh, has a 2,600 foot long, 60 foot wide runway compared to the airport that they had trained at that has a 7,900 foot long run, uh, 7,900 foot long, 150 foot wide runway. So this is a postage stamp compared to what they're used to landing on. Two go arounds later, we've never really gotten below about 100 feet on the approach. Things are unraveling quickly. At this point, I kind of have an idea of where this is going. I want to give them every possible opportunity to make good. So I tell them, let's just climb out of the traffic pattern. We're going to do some air work. We go out and, and do the high air work. Things are going okay. By this point, we're back close to the original airport where they did their training. While it has a 7,900-foot-long runway, it also has a 3,200-foot runway that's 60 feet wide. Guess which runway they're landing on now. I think I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I tell them we're heading back into the pattern for a normal landing on the short runway. We join the downwinds as we pass by the numbers. They reduce power, but the, the number one thing that I see guaranteed on private pilot check rides is high on final. I mean, it is almost a guarantee because people will reduce power, but then they get afraid to reduce power more or they get afraid to descend aggressively. And by the time we make the turn onto base, we're high. And by the time we make the turn onto final, we are really, really high. And that was the case this time. At the most, we had descended 300 feet per minute. We never got past that mark. For a lot of the, the downwind base to final turn, we didn't descend at all. And so we roll in on final very, very high. I mean, uncomfortably high. Applicant pulls a little bit of power, but mostly just pitches down aggressively. Oh, God. And so we start this kind of high dive maneuver. Airspeed does what the airspeed is supposed to do and starts winding up. And so we get down to the airport boundary, uh, you know, supposed to be 150, 200 feet uh, coming across the fence of this particular airport. We were about 500 AGL, uh, doing just a little over 95 knots with no flaps because we're above flap speed. Jeez. Applicant says, oh, I'm a little fast. Little. <laughs> Instead of pitching up now, rips the throttle to idle, but keeps the nose down. And so our speed stays exactly where it was, but now we're falling out of the sky <laughs> in the way only a piper can do. <laughs> <laughs> we cross the numbers uh, at about 150 AGL doing about 90 knots indicated, but doing about 1,600 feet per minute down. The numbers are getting real big in the window when my hand is kind of slowly starting to creep up, but I haven't touched it yet, and the applicant hauls back no. on the yoke. Bearing in mind now, the engine has been at idle for a little while. So they riff back on the yoke. The airplane balloons like crazy. The airspeed winds off faster than I've ever seen this airplane slow down. We're back up at probably about 50 feet AGL. I look over at the airspeed indicator and it's showing 49. Well, he fixed the too fast That's problem. the end of the check ride. <laughs> uh, I took the airplane at that point where the sink rate was already building. We had the nose up with no engine power. So I call my airplane, execute the go around, climb back into the traffic pattern. And the applicant was surprised that they failed.
I'm not. <laughs> Good that was that was probably the worst one. I had an applicant on a multi-engine check ride uh, forget to flare. Oh no! And again, I, I <laughs> let it go as long as I possibly can. But when we get down to five feet and you're still in the approach attitude and a light twin, things are not going to turn out well. And so. I called my airplane. Fortunately, it was it was a travel air, so it has the big bar in the middle. So I was able to grab the bar and haul back on the yoke, and and um, we hit the ground. But it, it was mains first, at least. Jeez, mm. those are those are probably the biggest ones. It's honestly, it's pretty rare. It's it's usually just boneheaded, get ahead of the the what they intended to do or, or get a little bit behind the airplane. It's, it's not usually anything that exciting. I was curious to ask Maddie, I don't know if, if uh, you're willing to talk about it, but I, in one of the previous episodes, uh, you had mentioned something about busting a check ride on the emergency off field landing. <laughs> Maybe it may or may not have Is been that... my CFI initial. <laughs> I was going to ask which ride that was. Yeah. I don't. Uh, yeah. It was, it was not great. So I had gotten very little sleep. Because, of course, I was stressing the hell out about this check ride. Um, no sleep. Uh, I had to go to a different airport for the check ride. So I went up to Anoka. Um, I did with Barb, Jim. I had to go. So that was already... I had gone there before to kind of get used to the airport, which I'm glad I did. But like the airspace and stuff, I still wasn't super comfortable. Um, so I was a little just freaked out. Um, the oral was fair, but long. You know, the CFI oral is really long. So I was just tired. Um, and then, yeah, the, the ride was just okay. Like, I was not quite the three-quarter scale deflection in every direction, but it was, like, kind of like that. I did the accelerated <laughs> stall, and she just said, I didn't really like that. And I said, okay. <laughs> she didn't fail me. She ended up failing me on it later. She tacked it on. That was a whole dilemma, but that's fine. So we continued on and I was just getting more and more flustered. Like I was afraid of busting the Bravo, you know, the Minneapolis Bravo that was above us. Um, even though I like knew we were cool because I, I had, you know, glass cockpit and everything. I was fine, but I was just a nervous wreck and everything was just eh until I was given an emergency. You know, she pulled my engine and it was totally fair. Like fields everywhere. I no big deal, but I was so unconfident in this area and I had never been good at like picking a point at, to land i just like picked one and hope for the best kind of thing which is never good but like i don't know what where what went wrong in my training for that to happen and go so long without being remedied but so i it was like student pilot like first time you pull the engine on a student they're like <laughs> that's kind of how it went with me and it was very embarrassing and I knew, like, for a second, I made a cruddy decision. I tried to pick another field. So, like, I picked one, like, way out, which was the stupidest mistake I could have made. Fast, no flaps. Like, I couldn't, yeah, I was thinking like crazy. No good. And she's like, yeah, that that wasn't quite it. Do you want to continue? I was like, not really. <laughs> so I went and did a short field landing, which was fine. And then... I only had to redo like two things. I had to redo that and I had to do like turns around a point or like some ground reference. Um, and then we were done. The ride after was like no big deal. But after that, I did, I went hard. I was, I went, took an instructor I had never flown with before. I was just like, you put me through the ringer. Give me like eight engine failures in this flight. And I like, just hang me up to dry. And so he did. And I learned a lot from that. Now I feel a lot better about it. And I've learned a lot of tips and tricks now that I am a CFI, working with other CFIs. Wow, that is so helpful. 
I learned a lot of things. Yeah, that was my failure. So the the reason I ask, uh, the day that I listened to that episode where you had, had made mention of that, I was driving home from the airport, having just failed somebody on their CFI initial on the engine failure off field landing. No, really? Oh God. And in in almost five years of examining CFI initials, that was the first time I had ever busted somebody on that particular maneuver. And I just I thought it was incredibly ironic, but it was a very <laughs> it was a very similar story. We had gotten through everything else pretty well. I mean, I'm not going to say flawless, but it, it was a very solid performance up to that point. I don't go directly to pulling the engine. Uh, on the CFI initial, I do a lot of the flying. Mm-hmm. Well, the controls go back and forth a lot. And so the way that I set it up is the the applicant had had finished demonstrating something for me. And I said, okay, I'd like to try it. So I take the airplane back from him and I said, oh, hey, wait a minute. I'm trying to set my power here. But as I'm looking at the engine gauges, the oil temp is off scale high and the oil pressure is off scale low. What's going on? And so he starts teaching me through the the checklist and he says, but that does mean that we're probably going to have an, and everybody says it exactly the same way. That means that the the engine is probably going to fail soon. And as soon as I hear that word, throttle comes to idle. (laughs) Some of the time CFI applicants let me keep flying and they just work their way through the checklist. Sometimes they immediately take the airplane and they try to work their way through the checklist. This guy took the hard route. He took the airplane from me immediately and tried to run the checklist at the same time. And it had just so happened to work out. I didn't do it on purpose, but before I pulled the power, I recognized that we were less than five miles away from a chartered airport. Fair game. So I kind of expected that we were going to turn back there uh, he even went in the GPS and pulled up the nearest airports and said, there's an airport right there. And he pointed out the window at where it was. Thought, all right, game on. Let's, we're going to go land on an actual airport for the, the engine failure. And then he says, but since this is a check ride, I'm going to pick a field. Hmm. What? <laughs> You're going to do what? <laughs> I can't say anything. I'm just the student at this point. So I have to stay silent. Well, we are, we're in central Arizona. There's fields everywhere. There's Arroyo everywhere. Yeah. Instead of picking a wide open plowed field, he picks a road, except for that it's not a road. It's a dam lined with high tension power lines on one side and telephone poles on the other side and a service truck, maybe 800 feet down from where he wanted to land this thing, power off. And so he starts maneuvering for it as he's kind of fumbling with the checklist and trying to simulate making the radio call. He ends up handing me, the student, the airplane again. And so I, as student, I start turning towards the giant open field. And he immediately corrects me and says, no, 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 our landing point is over here and points back at the top of this tiny little dam. And so we get down to the minimum safe altitude and and he's going to try and fit this thing in between the power lines and and say, all right, that's, that's it, my airplane. And, uh, that was the end of that exam. But that's probably one of the number one things that I see, especially on CFI rides, is applicants trying to game the system or, or trying to figure out what the intent is behind my words when the intent is what I said. Don't play a game. Fly it the way that you would fly it. That's what I want to see is is how you're going to fly the airplane when I'm not sitting in the seat next to you. So that brings up me to... I think a good transition to my next question here. What kind of trends are you seeing with applicants today, whether it be PPL or otherwise? Overall, uh, probably the biggest trend that I see 
is not necessarily any particular task or any particular uh, area of knowledge, though certainly radio discipline and weather are two of the big items. I think the, the number one top line issue that I run into is the idea of PIC authority or, or kind of that PIC mindset. A lot of applicants, even for commercial and, and for that matter, even for CFI, have gotten so used to being in the airplane, sitting next to somebody who's more experienced than them and being able to defer to that other person and, and look usually to their right when something comes up and say, should I do this? Or if this were real, I would do this. Well, now that you're on the check ride, guess what? You're that person. I'm just a passenger. And that's a big part of my both pre-exam and pre-flight briefing is I'm just a passenger today. Treat me as such. But when things start to get busy, when they start to get task saturated, when the stress level starts to go up, especially when we start getting into the emergency scenarios, I'd say 60, 70% of applicants easily will still look over their right shoulder at me and say, what should I do? Or what do you want me to do next? Or where do we go? Looking for that more experienced pilot to be the voice in their ear. Sure. And that is really not acceptable on a practical exam. Uh, the applicant really has to come into it with that mindset of I am PIC, I am the final authority in this cockpit, and they have to act that out. Do you see that same trend through all of the different rides, or is it primarily just private pilot license? Or Private and instrument are the two where it's most prevalent, but it does show up in all of them. Um, again, the, the CFIs a lot of the time are, are more trying to game the system and figure out what the, the tricks are before they come. Yeah. Instead of just flying the airplane and teaching me the whatever's happening around them. The commercial applicants usually have gotten that PIC mindset a little bit better up until the emergency scenarios start. And that's where a lot of the time you, you kind of get that law of primacy, that reversion to the old ways. And they, they start looking for some advice from the person next to them. But sure. Private and instrument certainly is where it's it's most prevalent, but it, it shows up all over. So we talked a little bit about, you know, some of the errors that you see, especially with emergencies. So, um, you know, in check rides. So if you could pin down a couple, what are the most common errors that you tend to see? You know, I, I wish I could point to the ACS and say it's this task mm -hmm. right here, because that would be pretty easy for us as an industry to fix. Uh, unfortunately, we as pilots are never done creating new ways to do dumb things. Uh, really, it's it's kind of all over the place. Um, radio discipline is a big one. Uh, you know, using appropriate verbiage. Uh, private pilot, you'd be amazed how many applicants don't know what flight service is, or how to find their frequency, or when you would use them. Uh, even instrument pilots sometimes get confused the difference between flight service versus uh, air traffic control and how to kind of differentiate which one to use at which time. You know, radio calls at non-towered airports tend to be a, an issue. For instrument and CFII, you've really got to understand how the system works, why it does what it does, when it's going to give you those certain enunciations, uh, when it's going to change 
between its various modes and a lot of the the details behind that are still kind of getting lost uh pilots at all levels really seem to struggle with afm supplements and we can all list the documents that are required to be on board as being the aero checklist but that doesn't cover the afm supplements unless you know that that's included in the operating handbook so uh, i've had a a couple busts or had stop check rides before they began because airplanes were missing the supplement for the GPS or for the GMA 340 if they had the the new audio panel things like that. So it's it's really the the details, the operational level, day to day stuff. I, I wish I could point to one task and say we as an industry need to do this better, but it's in my experience at least it's it's kind of been all over the place. I see new things every day from my students. That doesn't surprise me at all. Like ah, I've never seen somebody do that before okay and it it doesn't matter how many times you talk about the scenarios or or go through stuff on the ground and you think that they know exactly what's going to be coming and then you say do this maneuver and they come up with some creative way of messing it up (laughs) well thank you again matt for coming on this episode of the flying midwest podcast we appreciate your insight and we love talking with you who are out nerded who that's the real question i don't know that's a good question well, let the listeners that was his be mission the judge. to outnerd us. Well, he's a so, CPE. That's kind of their gig. All right. For by virtue of us being generous podcast hosts, Matt, you have thoroughly outnerded us. Yes. Congratulations. I wonder if Matt would know the answer to some of our sectional showdown questions. Probably. He would know every single one because <laughs> he's does. a nerd. I'm sure he would. Wow. <laughs> we we get him on the podcast and just we end the episode with "You're a nerd." <laughs> You would agree. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. So we do have a ton of content with Matt. There will be a follow-up episode to this one uh, coming up on our next episode. We'll have the rest of our conversation with Matt. So stay tuned for that episode. Absolutely. Well, I can't wait. So I'm going to make sure to push the like and subscribe and follow button on all my podcast players so that I don't miss the next episode. Oh, if you have an idea for a future episode, you want to be a guest or you just want to say, hey, uh, drop us a line on any of our social medias or send us an email at flymidwestpodcast at gmail.com. Also buy our merch. We have some cool merch. Thank you so much for all of your support and for listening to us. And until next time. See ya. See ya. Thanks so much for joining us on the Flying Midwest Podcast. Until next time, podcast service terminated, Squawk VFR, frequency change approved. Good day. I don't know. No, we get pretty boring at about the 20 minute mark, so. Yeah. It's asking a lot. (laughs) That is that Let's We have the blooper here at the end as like a thank you for tolerating yeah, us for true. the last hour. No, my mom listens. She can't know I swear. But it's me swearing. It's fine. I swear all the time. Ask my kids. <laughs> <laughs> so a paper tiger. You guys, you guys, Jim, you've seen one before. You're this is making a, a lot of noise with your mic. Yes. This okay. is a paper oh, yeah, tiger. Yeah, yeah. Wait, can you hold that up again so our listening audience can all right, take a good close look? Very funny. To be fair, what I did address that to Jim. I will post it if you want. I don't think it's proprietary information. It's so. fine. Anyway. So, Maddie, who do we have come on? Oh, wow.
cannot talk anymore. I should just stop. Why? Well, I can just in here. Let, let me just intro it. Okay, I can do ahead. it. I'm a big girl. Cloud, I thought we needed to have some transition. Go ahead. I'm going to shut up. So shifting gears a little bit from us to somebody else for once. Uh, no, I'm, just <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just leave that it's out. our podcast. We can do whatever we want. Can you cut that last half, Jim? Because that school teacher came right out again. It sure did. <laughs> <laughs> I like to share with the class. <laughs> I, these blooper reels just write themselves. I know. All right. You're never living this down. If you could own one plane, what would it be? What? Bleh, let me try again. And make if sure you, you like send podcasts? an email. And make send sure you send an email, email to, to because nobody does that anymore. Oh my gosh! And then you keep talking. Please, <laughs> please send us a letter or carrier pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> Leave your calling card at the door. He turns off his camera and his mic because he can't stop laughing. Oh, good grief. I only started laughing because he made you catch a little bit. I don't know. I'm, I'm trying not. I'm trying to me. look over at the show notes and not make eye contact. Or send us an email at flymidwestpodcast at gmail.com. What in the hell are you laughing at? <laughs> Just how ridiculous that transition was. <laughs>